Hosea chapter 12. I'm, I'm stunned looking back over this book and thinking about it this week at the vulnerability that the Lord has shown. That's not something I expected. That God would open His heart in such a way that He would appear vulnerable as, as a lover spurned, as one we read on Sunday whose heart is turned over within Him. His compassions so kindled. And you almost hear this battle within the Spirit of the Lord Himself back and forth between wanting to save His people and knowing He has to punish them. And the torment over punishing them and the joy at the possibility of their future and of loving them. We see in God the Father a heart that can be broken. And with it, a love that would break hardened hearts. It really goes both ways. From the place of God's own broken heart, He seeks to break the heart of man, the heart of woman, that He might get in. And that's where we're at. We're coming now to the end of Hosea, chapter 12, verse 1. We'll pick it up there. We're going to roll through, finish in chapter 14 tonight. And we pick up with this place of of God stirred up against Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, Hosea is preaching primarily to that northern kingdom. And in verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord says, Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord is calling out Ephraim's unfaithfulness. They have been unfaithful now across 900 years. Unfaithful to the original Mosaic covenant. The covenant that came on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, from the Lord to the people. It is a conditional covenant, an if-you-then-I covenant. And you could call it a divine marriage contract. For there at Mount Sinai, and then later on inside the land, the Lord would call out blessing and curse. He would say, we are entering into a contract now. You keep your part of the bargain. I will keep these promises to you. It's the only covenant God ever made with Israel or with anyone that we have in Scripture. The only one that is conditional. There's a reason for that, which I'll get into a bit bit later. But they have been unfaithful to it. They've spurned that divine marriage contract. And they think they can save themselves by treaties with with Assyria and oil trade with Egypt. That's what that first verse is talking about. He makes a covenant with Assyria. He's trying to make a treaty to protect himself instead of going to the Lord. He's trying to get into trade, oil with Egypt. You know how important oil is in the world. Let's trade and we can make a strong you know, treaty between us. And the reality is, God calls it eating wind. You are eating wind. These are vain attempts to survive. Ecclesiastes 1.14, Solomon wrote, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. You know, funny thing about the wind, you, you can't get your fingers around it. You can't grab hold of it. It can blow you back. It can topple trees. It can bring on the waves. But you can't grab hold of it. And so striving after these things, it's vain. Ephraim indeed, not only are they eating wind, they're pursuing the east wind, which in the Middle East is always destructive. The east wind is a hot, dry, parching, dehydrating, desiccating wind. 
that would blow away all manner of water? Ephraim, you're, you're not only eating wind, you're pursuing the east wind. And I realized reading this, I thought about this, and I had to really think it through, but I don't believe there's a single human covenant or agreement, marriage included, that can last. Not a one. Via political treaties, you know, or trade alliances between countries, or even a marital contract between a man and a woman, the truth is all human promises dry up. All of them. Rick, the closer you get to your daughter's wedding, the more pessimistic you're sounding. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the reality is, even in a marriage, we say, till death do us part. Because we know that there is coming an end of the contract at some point. What about the rapture? What if we're raptured together, Rick? Well, Jesus said they are not given in marriage, nor do they marry in the resurrection. So you work it out. There is no human marital contract or agreement or treaty or promise we can make that is everlasting. Not a single one. No human alliances can save me. No pacts that I make with somebody can protect me. And it's very pessimistic, but there's one exception to the rule. Agreement in the Lord. Agreement in the Lord. I love the conversation Jonathan and David are having together. They're nearing a time in their friendship where they realize they're going to be parted. Where they're not going to be able to hang together and be together like they would desire. And Jonathan says, 1 Samuel 20 verse 22, As for the agreement of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So in our marriages, if the Lord is between you and she, gentlemen, then it is forever. Oh, it may not be marriage in the resurrection like we think of marriage now. It'll be far better. If I am in agreement with a friend and the Lord is in that agreement, it's forever. If you and I agree as brothers and sisters in Christ, it is forever. It's the one agreement that lasts. The agreement in the Lord. Covenant in Jesus. When we ally ourselves with His Spirit, there is eternal assurance there. But Ephraim is eating wind. Now let me remind you as we finish all of this, when reading the prophets, and you need to keep this in mind through the rest of the minor prophets as well, it is vital to be clear to whom the Lord is referring. When He's talking about Israel or Judah or Jacob, He'll use different words, and it's very easy to be clear just as long as you keep these things in mind. Ephraim is always talking about the northern kingdom of Israel. At this point, he's not talking specifically about the individual tribe of Ephraim. The only time he's talking about the tribe of Ephraim is when he's talking about all twelve tribes and he's listed among the twelve. Otherwise, when God says Ephraim, as he will many times here at the end of Hosea, he's talking about the northern kingdom. Keep that in mind. When he says Judah, he's not talking about the tribe. He's talking about, again, the southern kingdom. The kingdom of Judah, which includes Judah and Benjamin. So it's that whole southern kingdom. When he says Israel, he's either talking about the northern kingdom, which he also calls Ephraim, or he's talking about all of the Jewish people. And when he says Jacob, he is most definitely talking about all of the sons of the tribes of Jacob. So all the people. So Ephraim is north, Judah is south, Israel is either the northern kingdom or everyone, and Jacob is everyone. Are we clear on that? 
Keep that in mind, because that will help you navigate through. As you're reading and you come to Ephraim, you'll know instantly it's that northern kingdom, the northern kingdom that fell when? Bible students, when did the northern kingdom fall? 722? Yes, 722 B.C. The southern kingdom fell when? 586. Is he right? Yes. You sure? Good. 586. (laughs) 722, 586. Northern kingdom in 722. The southern kingdom in 586. There will be a test later. Verse 2. The Lord has also a dispute with Judah. Judah in the south. And will punish Jacob, everybody, according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Again, the Mosaic Covenant. It is a deeds-based covenant. God said, if you, then I. And we all know how well that turned out. If you do this, then I will do my part. I will bless you if you keep my covenant. They couldn't. It was impossible. The Jewish people today, and I say this with all due respect, only make it more impossible to keep the covenant. They just add law upon law upon law. It's getting harder and harder. You cannot keep God's perfect covenant. So why did God make this single conditional covenant in the first place? One reason. Romans 5.20 The law came in so the transgression would increase. But where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God did it with Israel to prove a point to all humanity. You are not good enough for me. You cannot possibly be good enough for me. Therefore, here's my grace. And in this microcosm of Israel, God has shown us throughout all history, here's the deal. No people can keep my covenant. No people can be perfect enough for me. Paul says he did this so that as sin reigned in death... Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's marvelous. I I didn't understand that. Growing up, going to church as a kid, I didn't understand that the covenant wasn't a failure. It actually was a raging success because it did exactly what God wanted it to do. It proved man's inability to keep covenant. And in so doing, we turn to the grace of Jesus Understand that the story of Hosea has shown us something marvelous. That even for Gomer's faithlessness, Hosea the husband still brought her home. That's God's promise with Israel. Even for blowing it with the covenant, He's still going to bring them home. Israel's failure is not Israel's forfeiture. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. We'll get to Malachi in a few weeks or months. I have loved you, says the Lord... But you say, how have you loved us? The Lord says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob. What's he getting at? Jacob was pre-law. God chose to love Jacob, not based on anything Jacob did. In fact, much of what Jacob did was not lovable. But God chose to love him before the law. The law was not the issue. The love was the issue. The love and the grace of God. He said, I have chosen Jacob. I love Jacob. I will continue to love Jacob. The law was just the old school marm. You know, Galatians 5, I believe it is, tells us the law is just there to bring us to Christ. Galatians 3. It's in Galatians. Study, you'll find it. The law just is a tutor. 
brings us to Jesus, shows us our need, teaches us about grace. But the love, the love is with the Father, waiting by the gate for the prodigal to come home. Well, to see and understand that, we've got to walk some ancient paths. And that's what the Lord's going to do now. He's going to take us back, go all the way back to a time before Israel's schooling. Verse 3. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity, he contended with God. That's Yaakov, Jacob, whose name, many of you know, means heel catcher. What a great name. Because as Esau was coming out first, Jacob's grabbing his heel, trying to pull him back so he can get out first. It's a marvelous story. So his parents name him Heel Catcher. And it's a great name because he's also the birthright stealer. He's the conniver. He's the schemer. He's the man who wrestled God, as verse 3 tells us. In his maturity, he contended with God. That's too good a story to pass up. Turn back to Genesis 32. Verse 24. Jacob, after many plots and schemes, now is scheming his way back to the promised land. He knows Esau is coming, so he sends his wife and kids on ahead. (laughs) Wimp. And then he is alone. Watch this. Genesis 32, 24. Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Wait a minute. First of all, I thought Jacob was alone. But a man wrestled with him. So someone shows up. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, that is when the man saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. So this man who shows up obviously has more power in his little finger than Jacob has in his wrestling skills. Because all he does as he's not prevailing is Jacob is winning the wrestling match as he touches his thigh. Wrench, match over. And then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he, Jacob, said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Yaakov. He said, You shall no longer be Yaakov, but Israel. God prevails. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So note this, Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face. Peniel means facing God. I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel. And as he was limping on his thigh, Jacob would limp the rest of his life. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Go back to Hosea. That's the whole Old Testament story. That's that's the history we get in Genesis. But Hosea comes along and, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us some insight tells us some things about the story we would not have known otherwise. Three specific aspects of the story of Jacob contending with, wrestling with God. Watch this in verse 4. 
Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel and there he spoke with us. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is His name. So, three things to note here. First off, Jacob wrestled with God. Now, I want to clarify something because the text says he wrestled with the angel. And there's been a lot of confusion about this. In fact, we've seen throughout our study, through the Old Testament Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, we often see an angel coming and speaking with someone, as with Gideon, as with Jacob. And we see this angel representative... And the theologians step back a bit and they call it the theophonic angel. Theophonic, that is representative of God. Just an angel, but represents God. The word there in the Hebrew, where it says he wrestled with the angel, is malak. The word doesn't translate angel. The word translates messenger. Or perhaps representative. you got to get this. Jacob obviously, clearly understood that the angel was God. He named the place Peniel, facing God. I am face to face with God here. It would continue then through the centuries to be called Penuel, facing God. Jacob believed this was God. Hosea underscores that the angel was, in fact, God in the flesh. Look again at verse 5. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is His name. Jacob found him there at Bethel. And there he spoke with us. Who? The Lord. The God of hosts. The Lord is his name. Wait a minute. So the angel messenger, this this representative of God, was God. God in the flesh. And in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, and you can disagree, we know his name. And his name is Jesus. And I'm one of the belief... And I could be wrong, and if I am, okay. But I am one who believes that when we see this messenger in the Hebrew Scriptures, it is a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus. A Christophany. Not a theophonic angel, but a Christophonic messenger, Christ coming. The fourth man in the furnace. With Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I believe we see Christ there. So, Jacob wrestled with God. Scriptures are clear about that. He wrestled with God. Jesus is the physical representation of God. The exact, the Hebrew writer tells us, the exact representation of His being is Jesus Christ. So if we see God in the flesh, my assumption, it must be Yeshua. It must be Jesus. Secondly, second thing to note, Jacob won the match. He wrestled with God and he won the match. Verse 4 tells us that he prevailed. How so? I don't understand. God touched Jacob's hip socket and dislocated it. Match over. You call that winning? I'd say right there he lost. Right there he realized that he did not have the power to overcome. The question is, how do you win a wrestling match with God? And there is a way. You surrender. Jacob won because Jacob surrendered. Jacob won because he gave in. Look at verse 6. Therefore, return to your God. Observe kindness. That is grace and justice. Truth. Observe grace and truth. We know that grace and truth are given to us in Jesus, right? And wait for your God continually. It's a perfect story because so many 
So many of us have, some may still be, wrestling with God. So many have wrestled with God, struggling with Him, trying to understand Him. Why doesn't He work in this way? How come He does things this way? Why isn't He answering me here? Why is my life in what it is? Struggling with, wrestling with God. And there's only one way to win that match, and it's surrender. Give up, give in. Isaiah 55 verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That's how you win. You repent. You return. You give in. You stop fighting. And you recognize that he's got more power in his little finger than you will have in your entire life. Jacob wrestled with God. Jacob won the match. And number three, Jacob wept like a baby. Verse four says he wept and he sought his favor. Now that's something the Genesis record doesn't tell us. Jacob in the wrestling match starts crying. It's hilarious to me. He's the weeping wrestler. That's not something that evokes strength and power. But what we have here, a picture of of Jacob, the wrestling match over, his hip is wrenched, and he's clinging. He's clinging to this man. He's clinging to this Moloch, this theophonic angel. He's clinging to Christ. He will not let go. He's seeking His grace. He holds out for His name. And there God changes His name from heel catcher to one who prevails. Or Israel also can be translated Prince of God. You're no longer a second class child. Second one to come out of the womb. Second one in everybody's eyes who has to connive his way to the top. You are now a Prince of God. And it's not by anything that you have done, Jacob. It's by my grace, the Lord would say. The weeping wrestler lost the match, but won with God, prevailing as Israel. And by the way, Israel will prevail again. But when Israel prevails the next time, it will also be with weeping and mourning and surrender. But as Hosea is prophesying, the conniving spirit is still there. It didn't go away so easily. Verse 7, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they will find in me no iniquity which would be sin. And remember, as we opened up the pages of Hosea at the beginning, we talked about the fact that the northern kingdom at this time was very wealthy. At least at the beginning of Hosea's ministry. And thought because of their vast political holdings and their trade routes and the money coming in, we're in good shape. We must be righteous because we're so blessed as they're continuing to run off to the bales and the astropoles and worshiping the idols. They think they're rich, but they're as poor as sin. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. Laodicea's problem was the same problem that Ephraim had so many years ago. And that problem is false financial security. And it is typical. False financial security. 
which says we're prospering, therefore God can't be too upset with us, right? Got a lot in the account. Stocks and bonds aplenty. I got money rolling in. Therefore, God must be pleased with me. Don't kid yourself. Don't fool yourself. It's false financial security. Hold that thought. I'll come back to it. Verse 9. But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. In other words, your master from the point that they came into covenant together. I will make you live in tents again as in the days of the appointed festival. Now there's a double entendre here of grace and judgment in verse 9. I'm going to make you live in tents like you did in the wilderness, but also like you do in the festival. That's a bad thing and a good thing. And he's referring to both. They lived in those tents in the wilderness. And they celebrated, once they were in the land, they would celebrate annually in their tents together the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. They still do today. Don, you've been there during Sukkot, haven't you? I've seen pictures. It's a marvelous thing. You know, people literally, they, they build these little tabernacles, these little shelters all over the place, all over Jerusalem. They got them out on people's porches on hotel high-rises. It's amazing. And it's a great time and it's a joyous celebration, a festival, remembering how God brought them through the land and God says, I'm going to send you right back into those tents. I'm sending you back there. You heard about the guy who went to a psychiatrist because he spent his whole life camping. He was obsessed with camping. He couldn't do anything but camp over and over, day after day, night after night. He had to camp. And the psychiatrist said, it's not a problem, you're just too intense. (laughs) Their diaspora gang was intense. Their dispersion was awful, is awful, is to a degree ongoing. You read just this week that there was a massive airlift out of the Ukraine by Israel bringing Jews home, rescuing them from the anti-Semitism that is increasing in Europe. It looks so much right now, and don't be shocked at this, it looks so much right now like it did in the early 30s before the Nazi regime. So much like it did in Germany It's looking like that in the world again. And the Jewish people are sensitive to it. They see it. The Lord says, you know, it's both. I'm going to make you live in tents again. I'm going to make you wander. I'm going to send you back to the wilderness. But then He mentions this this idea of the appointed festival and there's a hint of grace in it. Because Bible students, what feast of all the feasts finds its fulfillment in the coming millennial kingdom? It's Sukkot. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Zechariah 14.16 tells us that the nations who are left will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's the feast that is representative or indicative of the coming kingdom. You're going to be intense in the wilderness again, and I'm going to bring you to that place of celebration. And I think God is hinting at both. Verse 10. I've also spoken to the prophets and I've given numerous visions and through the prophets I gave parables is there iniquity in Gilead surely they are worthless in Gilgal they sacrifice bulls their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field now 
Jacob fled to the land of Aram. That's Syria today. And Israel worked for a wife. And for a wife he kept sheep. But by a prophet the Lord brought Israel from Egypt. And by a prophet he was kept. Notice the beautiful contrast here. Jacob, who fled to the land of Aram, who worked for a wife. Remember the story? Jacob working to get Rachel. Makes a deal with Laban. He worked for me seven years, I'll give you my daughter. He goes, great, he works seven years. He marries the girl, takes her home. The next morning he wakes up, looks at her, it's not Rachel, it's Leah. Whoops, it's all weak eyes. So he goes back and he goes, man, you tricked me. He goes, well, I can't marry the younger daughter before I marry the older daughter. thought that was understood. Ha ha. Right? And he says, well, but I want Rachel. Work for me another seven years and I'll give you Rachel. So he got Rachel and Leah and a whole mess of kids and a big problem. (laughs) But he worked and worked and worked to get the wife of his dreams Jacob shows us the results of the work of man. And what are the results of the work of man? Gang, Rachel died. I've seen her tomb outside of Bethlehem. It's with us to this day. Rachel died. All of that work. Yeah, he had some years with her. Yeah, he had some children by her, miraculously. But ultimately, she would die on the way to Bethlehem and be buried there, and that's the end result of the work of man. Contrast that with the Word of God. He says, by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt. That is by Moses. Moses was used by the Lord to bring Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was Israel was kept. And to this day, the Jewish people are with us, because the Word of the Lord promised they would be. God's word always lasts. Man's work always fails. It's the word of God that we live by. It's the word of God we trust. It's not dead and buried by Bethlehem. It's alive and kicking in this barn. It's everlasting. It is unfailing. And Romans 11 tells us it is irrevocable. Man's best work cannot last. God's perfect word is irrevocable and will last forever. And so verse 14 says, Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger. So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him. Blood guilt because of the sacrifices to the idols. Blood sacrifices. Child sacrifices. His blood guilt will be left on him. And he will bring back his reproach to him. Chapter 13, verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. By the way, that just indicates Ephraim's prominence as a tribe among all the tribes of the northern kingdom. They spoke, there's a big tribe. So when Ephraim spoke, everyone else trembled because they were the big tribe. They were the reason why the northern kingdom was called Ephraim because they were bigger than anybody else. When they spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel. But through Baal, he did wrong and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. And they say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. I just got to ask, anyone here ever kissed a cow? Wow. I 
I was hoping I wouldn't get a hand on that, Kyle. (laughs) This prominent, prestigious, powerful tribe bowed down, and instead of butterfly kisses, they blew bovine kisses. (laughs) They're kissing... How could they? (laughs) They should have just steered clear of the whole thing. Their glory became folly. Powerful tribe, big tribe, when they spoke, everyone trembled and they end up kissing cows. The worship of anything man-made. Anything man-made, which is the work of our hands. The worship of that stuff is as ridiculous as lip-locking a heifer. (laughs) Just ask Kyle. So, verse 3 describes an emptiness from this attitude, this idolatry, an emptiness that blows away. We've seen this verse before. Therefore, they will be like the morning cloud. What does the morning cloud do? It blows away. Like the dew, which soon disappears. Like chaff, which is blown away from the threshing floor. And like smoke from a chimney. Verse 4, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. Second time he said this. Remember he said it back in verse 9 of the previous chapter. God is developing a theme here. I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me. Boy, did he make that clear. Abundantly clear. The first of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. And you shall have no other gods before me. I'm it. Let's get this clear right up front. Yes, Lord. There is no Savior, he says, besides me. I love this. At the same time Hosea is speaking these words in the north, Isaiah is speaking the same truth down south. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 11. I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Isaiah 45, verse 21, There is no other God besides Me, a righteous God and a Savior. There's none except Me. There's no other God. One Savior. Who is God? One God who is Savior. And by the way, for the Lord to say that through Hosea and Isaiah both, and then to come along seven centuries later and endorse the person and ministry of Jesus Christ is to confirm that Jesus is both Savior and God. God and Savior. There's only one. So if God, spoke of by Isaiah and Hosea, is Savior, and Jesus comes along and claims to be Savior, He's claiming to be God. Because there is no other. And that's why, as Paul wrote, we continue to be, Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Chapter 13, verse 5. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. And this is a bizarre, but it's a natural truth. A truth of natural man, forgetfulness. Write it as two words, forgetfulness. Because when we get comfortably full, we tend to forget God. When we become... As my dad used to say, fat, dumb, and happy. We tend to have no other needs, no other concerns. If 
find it interesting that it's in our times of leanness that we seek the Lord. It's in our times of hunger, our times of thirst, our times of struggle and difficulty. That's when we go after Jesus. But when it's all going good and we're cruising along and life's easy, and we get satisfied and satiated, those are the dangerous times, those are the times of forgetfulness. In the Great Depression of the 1930s, you realize that the American churchgoers gave a greater percentage of their income than we do today? Now some might say, well, yeah, but this has been a bad recession. Okay, let's go back a few years. Let's go back to the mid-90s when America was richer per capita, per household, richer than any time ever before in America's history. And in the Great Depression, people still gave vastly more by percentage of their income than we did in the 90s. Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them, Paul says, to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And I'm reading that because, gang, a full belly leads to an empty heart. And my own satisfaction and my own chasing after fullness in terms of riches and things and and satisfaction in life, it, it leads to an emptiness. It is a dangerous road and is one we ought not be careless with. Now, I want to say this, and and I I realize so often Wednesday nights I'm preaching to the choir. You're a great choir, by the way. Keep on singing. But this this is a remarkably generous fellowship. And I'm not just blowing smoke here. You need to understand, of all the churches that I've served and worked with throughout my ministry, I've never seen a church give more than this church does. It's remarkable to me. It's stunning. And I don't say this to generate revenue. But my friends, our remembrance of God is directly tied to our tithes and offerings. And you need to think about that. I need to remember that. My faithfulness to Him is most immediately seen in what I give. And that's the kind of thing that makes us all really uncomfortable. But the truth is, our giving reflects our trust. It doesn't reflect how much we have. It doesn't reflect our self-righteousness. In fact, your giving has nothing to do with self-righteousness. But it does reflect how much we trust in the Lord. That I trust Him more than I trust my balance sheet. I trust Him more than I trust my ability to make a living. I trust Him first. That's why tithing is a a valid principle in Scripture. Not a law, not a legal requirement to gain you know, salvation or to gain a better standing with the Lord. No, the, the, the grace of Jesus took all of that away. But tithing, 10%ing, is a beautiful principle because it calls us into the trust of the Lord. It forces me. When I write that check or count out those bills, forces me to trust Him with the 90% that He says I want you to live on. And there's a direct correlation between that and how much I trust the Lord. Ephraim got fat and full and therefore forgetful. 
forgetfulness. Verse 7. So I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs. Kyle, have you ever seen a bear robbed of her cubs and tried to kiss her? I will be like a bear robbed of her cubs and I will tear open their chests. This is graphic. There I will also devour them like a lioness as a wild beast would tear them. I will tear open, literally, not their their chest, but in the Hebrew, I will tear open the enclosure of their hearts. I'm going to rip open their ribcage. Why is God speaking so graphically? Why tear open their chests? Because that's where the heart is. It is a graphic explanation of God's desire to go straight for the heart. Remember Sunday that we talked about. He's a heartbreaker. God is a heartbreaker. He would break the stony residue around my heart to get into the soft heart that's beating and pour His love and His Word and His truth and His Spirit into the heart that would receive Him. Even if it means tearing open their chest to get there. Verse 9, It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. There's an irony for you. When people rebel against God, push back against God, reject God, they're rejecting their own help. They're rejecting the very hand that would provide for them, nurture them, love them, and save them. No, I don't want any of that. It's foolish. Where now is your king? Verse 10, That he may save you in all your cities. And your judges of whom you requested, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger. That was Saul, by the way. Remember this, the people were saying, we want a king like the nations. And God said, you want a king like the nations? I'll give you one. Saul, Saul, he's your man. He's the people's choice. And he was a lousy king. He looked like a king. He was taller than most of the Israelites. Had good stature. Probably had a nice nose, you know. Good looking boy. He's the one for king. And God says, no. That's what you want. I'll give him to you. But it was a mess. And then God brought along, I believe, his choice, David. Out there in the sheepfolds brought him in to be king over Israel. But he says, I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. God did take Saul away, but I believe here he's now referring to the last king of Israel, which is again Hoshea. Hoshea, who in this late hour is about to go. The last king of Israel is on his way out the door. The year, perhaps at this point in chapter 13, we may be right on the verge of 722 B.C., if not into the year already. And the Lord is making it clear. Samaria is going to smolder Israel will be annihilated and Hoshea is going to be taken out. Back there in verse 9, it is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Literally, literally, check this out, he says, you are destroyed, O Israel, but in me is your help. Which is an amazing statement because what he's saying is that even in your ruin, my hand is still outstretched. Even in your destruction, your annihilation, my hand is there ready to save any of you, any one of you who would stand up and say, Save me, Lord. 
Even as the punishment falls, the hand of the Lord reaches to save His children. Verse 12, The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The pains of childbirth come upon him. He is not a wise son. For it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. You want a picture of that? A husband and a wife in the, in the, the labor room. Baby's about to come out and husband says, Honey, I really think we ought to rethink this whole birth. What do you think the wife's going to say? I probably can't repeat it here. (laughs) He says, you're foolish. It's not time that you should delay. And what he's saying is, now is the time. If ever there was a time, now is the time. At the birth pangs of your destruction, now is the time to seek me. Now is the time to turn it around. He's still offering grace. He's still saying, even now, at the 11th hour, I'm waiting, I'm here, I'll save you. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. Sound kind of familiar? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15 verse 54. Paul writes, When this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal body will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written in Isaiah 25, verse 8, Death is swallowed up in victory. And then Paul writes, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Hosea 13, 14. Slightly different because Paul is translating from the Septuagint. So he's writing from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is why he writes, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But originally it's, O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15-56, The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's the answer. O death, where are your thorns? On the head of Jesus. O death, where is your sting? In the side of the Christ. Verse 15. Though he flourishes among the reeds, or literally among his brothers, an east wind will come, the wind of the Lord, coming up from the wilderness, and his fountain will become dry, and his spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. Samaria, capital of Ephraim, capital of northern Israel, Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword, their little ones will be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. That's how brutal the Assyrian attack is going to be. There's something marvelous here. Something absolutely amazing to consider. In verse 15, he says, His fountain will become dry. His spring will be dried up. This is Samaria he's talking about. Samaria which would end up parched and thirsty. Their spring evaporated. Their fountain waterless. Their well has run dry. In Samaria, there's a well. A familiar old well. A well called Jacob's Well. And centuries later, something 
remarkable happened at that well. You know the story. A woman whose life was dry, whose heart was completely parched, comes to the well at noon. She goes to draw water, and yet she thirsts for so much more. And Jesus was there. And Jesus asks her for a drink and then engages her in conversation. And then He says this to her, John 4.13, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Do you understand what happened? Samaria will be parched. Samaria will be dry until Jesus comes and offers the living water at that same capital, in that same city, at the well in Samaria. And on that day, salvation came back to Samaria in the person of Jesus. Remarkable. You know, the beauty of studying and meditating on even the weightier judgments within the Bible and within the minor prophets is that knowing for all the pain of Israel's past, there is a marvelous future promised to her. An incredible kingdom is coming. And that's where the Lord takes us in the final chapter. And I want to read you something that Charles Spurgeon said about Hosea 14. He wrote, This is a wonderful chapter to be at the end of such a book. I had never expected from such a prickly shrub to gather so fair a flower, so sweet a fruit. But so it is. Where sin abounded, grace doth much more abound. No chapter in the Bible can be more rich in mercy than this last of Hosea, where we looked for the blackness of darkness. Behold, a noontide of light. Check it out. Chapter 14, verse 1, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. I like that. God says, I want you to repent, but I want you to take words with you. Don't just sit there in the ashes and mumble and groan. Take words with you. Why? Because because the worship of God is articulate. Because repentance is intelligent. Yes, I know. Romans 8.26 tells us the Spirit intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. But the Lord also would have you, would have me, come to Him ready to talk. Come with words. Don't just mumble your way into repentance. Come with words. Romans 10 verse 8 says, What does faith say? The Word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the Word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, of course. But he also says with the mouth a person confesses, resulting in salvation. Take words with you, God says. But He doesn't just say take words with you, good luck with that. He gives them the words to say. It's wonderful. Words of repentance. Words of a tender, broken adulterer. He gives words of homecoming. And I want you, as you hear these words, to imagine Gomer at Hosea's door. That's the idea here. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all iniquity. And receive graciously 
that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. Nor will we say again our God to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. Bring these words with you, God says. Speak these words. Return to me and say this. Six words of homecoming here. Six words of return worth noting. And by the way, there's a great application. We'll just do a little bit tonight, but you can do this on your own. Read through just that verse and a half and compare it to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 where David returns from his adultery, repentant and weeping in a homecoming to the Lord. Watch this, word number one, return to Him for removal. For removal, they say, take away all iniquity. Remove all iniquity. Psalm 51, verse 1, David writes, Be gracious to me, O God, according to Your loving kindness, according to the greatness of Your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He says in verse 7 of Psalm 51, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Because the person coming to God in repentance recognizes one thing. i got to be clean if I'm going to be in His presence. I've got to be washed or the whole thing is worthless. I cannot come into the presence of God's perfection with the filth that is on me. Wash me, Lord. Cleanse me. Take away all iniquity. Second word. Return to Him for renewal. Renewal. The words there, receive us graciously. Literally, it's give good. Give good. God, take away all iniquity and give good. What's He talking about? As you take away my iniquity, Lord, I pray You would give me goodness. And there is nothing, no greater good than the goodness of His Holy Spirit within me. As you take out the sin, fill me with your Spirit. Wash me clean, then fill me up. David says in Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Cleanse me and fill me. Think about that word renew. To make new again. Make me new all over. That's what being born again is. Renewal. Being made new. Born again of the Spirit. Third word. Not only return to Him for removal and for renewal. Number three. Return to Him with rejoicing. They say that we may present the fruit of our lips. And the Hebrew writer picks up right on that, quotes it actually. He says, through him then, Hebrews 13, 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. What's that doing here? You need to understand that worship is one of the most obvious and ongoing fruits of repentance. If I come into services, if I come into church and I refuse to worship, you got to wonder what's going on in the heart. Why would you not want to worship God? Well, I've got a bad singing voice. He doesn't care. He says, make a joyful noise. It's a great psalm. It takes out that excuse from anybody. But I, have, I, I, I can't carry a tune in a bucket, my dad would say. But I'll tell you what, my dad can make a joyful noise. 
Because when you realize the grace and mercy of Jesus, you've got to worship. And so he says, let, let us have the fruit of our, of our lips. David, Psalm 51 verse 8 said, Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Psalm 51 14, My tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. That's what happens when a person repents and comes to the Lord and is washed clean and is renewed. Now i got to praise Him. Number four, return to Him for reassurance. Note this, they say in verse 3, Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. My assurance is not in my alliances here on earth. My assurance is not in my trade agreements. My assurance is only in the Lord. Psalm 20 says, Some boast in chariots and some boast in horses. We will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. He is our assurance. He is our reassurance. David, Psalm 51, said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. When is that? When I've been converted from my sin. Then I will be used of you to convert others from their sin. Which I think is a great verse because it tells us that we don't go into the world proclaiming our righteousness. We go into the world proclaiming His righteousness that has washed us of our sinfulness. We go into the world understanding sin because we ourselves were sinners. Return to Him, number five, in reliance. Reliance. They say, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. No more idolatry. No more idolatry. Our reliance will now be in the Lord. David said in Psalm 51.16, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The work of my hands is not the deal. It's the attitude of the heart. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 tells us He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which He granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Not according to works, but according to grace. Now all of these are the heartwarming words of the harlot's homecoming. Words that God gives to the repentant sinner says, speak these. Come to me and speak these words. Bring these words with you. But as far as I'm concerned, the final word is the most precious. There at the end of verse 3, for in you the orphan finds mercy. Orphan is fatherless. In you the fatherless finds mercy. Number 6, return to him for mercy. As David wrote, Psalm 51.17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Six words. Removal of sin. Renewal of spirit. Rejoicing of heart. Reassurance of mind. Reliance of strength. And finally, number six, mercy. You might say, well, Rick... That's great, but mercy doesn't start with an R. So you've messed up my entire list. Actually, mercy does start with an R. In the Hebrew, remember Gomer's first daughter? 
Her name was Lo Ruchama, no mercy. Take away the low. And that's the word that you see right here, for in you the orphan finds Ruchama. Finds mercy. How does God respond to those who communicate with words of heart and of mind? He closes out this great prophecy with pure poetry. God is at heart a romantic. Look at verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and His beauty will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in His shadow will rise again and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. Amazing poetry. Beautiful word pictures and synonyms here. Remember, there are a lot of them in Hosea. And he comes and he just gives a whole litany of them. He starts with the dew. The dew that speaks of daily refreshment. Every morning. Well, new every morning, right? Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. The Lord says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. And I don't know about you, but I need them every morning. I do. I'm not kidding. I wake up. It's not just pastor talk here. I wake up, open my eyes and go, I need your mercy all over again. Now what's marvelous is like the morning dew, it's there. Fresh and new. Every single day with Jesus, that's what the dew describes. New every morning. Great is His faithfulness. The lily. He says they'll blossom like the lily. The lily in Israel, it speaks of abundant beauty. Just profuse beauty. Now it's probably not the white lily, I think they call it the the Madonna lily. That that beautiful white lily, they, they grow those in Israel. But the lily here probably refers to the profuse little scarlet poppies that dot the hillsides in the spring. Little red poppies that just cover the ground. They're like carpet, it's amazing. And they are in full bloom in Israel these days. You go there at the right time, which is a lot of the reason we go in March, is to see those scarlet poppies. It's just beautiful. And those are probably the lilies he's talking about. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 2. Like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. Among all the lilies, they're really all kind of thorny. She's beautiful, abundant beauty. Jesus said in Luke 12.27, speaking of these scarlet poppies most likely, He said, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. Not even Solomon could be as beautiful, as abundantly beautiful as these lilies that just cover the land. And God says, Israel, you're going to blossom like that again. He says, the cedar roots and shoots. You're going to be like that. That speaks of steadfast strength. The strength of a cedar dug in deep. Psalm 92, verse 12, the righteous man will flourish like a palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Cedars of Lebanon have to be strong. Strong winds will blow through there off the Mediterranean coast. And those cedars are strong and dug in. God says, Israel, you're going to be that way. Again, Ephraim, you're going out right now. You're going to come back. And when you fully return, 
You're going to be rooted deep. And your shoots are going to spread out. He says you're going to be like the olive tree. The olive tree. There in verse 6. The olive tree, olive tree speaks of so many things in Scripture, it's hard to nail it down. We'll just go with spiritual honor. The olive tree speaks of spiritual honor. Psalm 52 verse 8. As for me, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God, in the temple. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. The olive tree producing that olive oil, that pure olive oil used for the lampstand in the temple. And the psalmist writes, I feel like that. Like I'm right there in your presence. And they are producing through me oil for the lamp. Spiritual honor. He mentions here the shadow of the cedar. Those who live in his shadow will, and specifically, literally, it's they will return and they will raise grain. Those who live in His shadow will return. They will raise grain. One of the amazing things that happened when Israel became a nation again in 48 was the return of foreigners into the land, many of whom are Arabs, coming back into the land under the shadow of Israel because things were growing again. Because there was land that could be tilled. Because there was work. Because there was prosperity And exactly as the Lord said, the shadow of the cedar, it speaks of spreading blessing. Our world has no idea how blessed we are because of the nation of Israel. Our world has no idea the technology we have right now because Israel has been there for the last 60 or so years. It's incredible the way Israel already, and this is prior to the kingdom. The kingdom's coming and it's going to be even more marvelous, but Israel is spreading out like a great cedar. And if those, if we come under the shadow of that blessing, praying for the peace of Jerusalem, loving Israel as God loves Israel, God says, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. Ezekiel 17 verse 23 says, On the high mountain of Israel I will plant it, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit, and become a stately cedar, and birds of every kind will nest under it, and they will nest in the shade of its branches, which tells us even evil people are blessed by Israel. Because birds are typically somewhat evil in the scripture, a picture at least of, of evil. Not all birds, there's some cute ones, but... I've mentioned before, the bird that pooped on my notes one Sunday morning, evil. (laughs) He says, the vine blossom. They will blossom like the vine. Speaking of serene inheritance. Man, to tell an Israeli today, I'm giving you a vineyard. That just speaks of serenity and calm and peace. It speaks of inheritance. Micah 4.4 Each one of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Zechariah 8.12 There will be peace for the seed and the vine will yield its fruit and the land will yield its produce and the heavens will give their due and I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. The vine speaks of that sweet, serene inheritance. Number seven, the wine of Lebanon, he says. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon which speaks of sweet joy everlasting. Sweet joy everlasting. Joel 3.18 In that day the mountains will drip sweet wine. And the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and the spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. 
Of course, you know Jesus said in Matthew 26.29, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The vine speaks of inheritance. Your sweet inheritance, Israel. I'm going to give you all of this. The dew and the lily and the roots of the cedars and the olive tree and, and the shadow of the growing, uh, growing cedars of Lebanon and, and the blossom of the vine and the wine of Lebanon. All of this, this is God's response to Israel's return. This shouldn't be His response. The adulteress is at the door. The husband should slam the door in her face. No way you're welcome back here. I am through with you. I'm done. You're unfaithful. You've proven it time and again. I will not receive you back into my house. That should be Hosea chapter 14. It's not. Instead it's, oh, have I got a homecoming planned for you. Have I got a beautiful place? All of this to describe what God will give as they come home. And in verse 8 it says, O Ephraim, what more have I do to do with idols? And it shouldn't say that. What it literally should say is, Ephraim shall say, Ephraim shall say, what more have I to do with idols? The literal translation is the people in receiving the blessing of homecoming Look at the Lord and go, why would I ever want to have to do with idols again? Why would I want to have anything to do with kissing cows? Golden calves. When you realize the fullness of God's love, idolatry is pale and empty and just plain lame. And God says, it is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. The cypress here is the word barosh in the Hebrew. And it's either cypress, it could also be a fir, a juniper, or a pine tree. We're not sure exactly what the barosh was. It was one of those. It's an evergreen tree. It was a tree indigenous to Israel. It's an evergreen. And along with the cedar, the barosh provided the wood for the temple in Jerusalem. It was cedar wood and it was barosh wood, whatever type of tree that was. The Lord is describing here in saying, I'm a luxuriant cypress, He's describing His divine presence. That where the presence of the Lord is, there's fullness of joy. Where the Lord is present, there is fruit, there is covering, there is protection, there is holiness, there is righteousness. And He's declaring His abiding presence in and among His people Israel when they finally come home. Jesus said of you and of me, He said, John 15.5, He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's true. It's where we began. Apart from Him, all promises, all agreements, all alliances, all trades, everything we might get our hands into, apart from Him, will fall. Apart from Him is worthless. Apart from Him is idolatry. But with Him, oh, with Him is eternal fruit and covering and shade. The more I am aware of Jesus' presence within me, 
the more I flourish in this life and in the life to come. So we close out this remarkable, heartbreaking, personal, prodigal prophecy with a final exhortation, verse 9, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the righteous will walk in them. The transgressors will stumble in them. What I get from Hosea chapter 1 to Hosea chapter 14 is a picture of God the husband who loves Jacob, the harlot wife, loves Jacob all the way to Israel. He loves the heel catcher all the way to the prince, to the prevailer. He loves from the ancient past to what for us now is the near future. And in all of these things, he says, I want you to get this. Be discerning, be wise, and understand what I'm saying here. What are you saying, Lord? He's just given us a picture of His everlasting love. God is love. Amen? Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank You for Your Word to us tonight and over the last few weeks. Lord, while You spoke through Hosea to save Your people Ephraim, as we review these words now, it's not only salvation that that we experience, it is the immensity of Your love. The, The incredible nature of Your grace. And how even for all of our infidelity, and we all have been unfaithful, You have remained faithful from day one. And I don't even know what to say to that. We receive it. We we thank You for it. We pray that by Your faithfulness we will become more faithful. That by Your righteousness our sin will fall. That by Your, Your grace, Lord, we will be more gracious. You have shown us Your love. Now I pray You would help us to walk in it. In Jesus' name. Amen.